Well, good morning, guys. So good to see y'all. Uh, wow, it's awesome. Good group of y'all here to join with us today. Well, how about we all stand one last time, and uh, we're going to read Scripture. So if you would like, open your Bibles to the book of First Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have some ushers that are right now handing out Bibles, and feel free to raise your hand. If you currently do not own a Bible, go ahead and take this. It's our gift to you guys. We're going to read First Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10 through 12. We've been making our way through this entire book, verse by verse. Um, it's a story that uh, one of the early New Testament writers, a guy by the name of Peter, wrote to a community of Christians living scattered across the ancient Roman world, and they were all trying to live faithfully to Jesus, though they found themselves consistently in conflict in terms of how do I live faithfully to Jesus uh, when the culture at large is uh, hostile towards the claims of Jesus. And in a lot of ways, this is exactly where we find ourselves today as followers of Jesus trying to make sense of being faithful to him as well. So I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pray that we'll jump in and get to work at the text. It says, verse 10 through 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched, and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, these things of which even the angels long to look into. So let's pray. This is the word of God. And let's commit our time to Jesus. God, right now, we ask you that you would speak to our hearts, open our eyes, transform our minds. And God, ultimately empower us so that as we scatter from here, that we could embody the gospel, look like people that are truly devoted to you, Jesus, in this world. So help us even in this moment to fix our eyes upon that which is remaining, that which will last, that which is durable, and that which is ultimately altogether satisfying, which is you. So we commit this time in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't y'all grab a seat? So I want to look at really what Peter identifies, the very first little section we just read right here. He says, concerning this salvation. So I want to take a brief moment and really try to understand a little bit about what this salvation is. So I want to think about salvation projects, if you want to think of a title or a heading over the first idea. So I want to look at salvation projects. Then I want to basically ask a question, um, which we'll get to in just a moment. And then we'll take a look at kind of the host of witnesses that rally around this, this salvation and testify to its greatness. And then I just want to close with some final thoughts. So there you go. That's kind of what we're going to look at here this morning. So with that, I want to jump in and think about these salvation projects. And what I mean by that is I want to try to defer, de- define a little bit of our terminology. What do we mean when we say the word salvation? Uh, what exactly does that mean? I think a little bit of a elaboration of identification or a definition is important for us in this moment. So salvation. 
First of all, I'm just going to give you a quick like little dictionary.com definition. I'll give you my definition, and then I'm going to lead into a question that will jump into the main body of this. Uh, the definition of this from just kind of a secular perspective is the preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. So again, listen to that. The preservation slash deliverance from harm, ruin, or loss. That's That's purely a secular perspective. There's a religious element which will talk about just a moment but just when we use the word salvation we can think of salvation being i got saved from a really bad situation or salvation from a bad relationship or salvation from a bad job so we can use it in just a purely non uh non-metaphysical type of a sense purely rational purely normal purely secular type of a perspective and this is the main way in which oftentimes we can think of it. the second way i want to give you a little bit of my definition which is the deliverance of individuals or communities, broader perspective, a community is what? It's a host of individuals, from chaos to peace, from disintegration to integration, being integrated, being part of a whole, and from death to life. So that's how I want to think about this idea of salvation. Um, throughout the Bible, this concept of salvation plays into a lot of different ways. There are times where the children of Israel, for example, in the Old Testament, they are saved from a bad opposing army. So again, like I said, just from a non-metaphysical type of perspective, meaning that there's a danger that they face, God saved them. It doesn't have anything to do with going to heaven when you die. It just has to do with being rescued from an immediate impending danger. So there is a way of thinking about salvation being saved from something bad and well as being saved from something that's eternally bad we could call that sin death and so on that's why i want to kind of settle on a definition that sort of encompasses all of these things and so here's again my definition listen to it again the deliverance of individuals or communities from chaos chaos to peace from disintegration to integration from death to life and i think that kind of fits in with both perspectives with regard to biblical definition as well as just normal in life now with that i want to talk a little bit about greatness because what the author here peter is doing is he's wanting wanting to kind of focus upon the greatness of salvation so why he points out he says now concerning this salvation now what peter's going to do is going to talk about why this salvation is so great and what, what is the, the this he's referring to? The this he's referring to is the salvation that's directly connected to Jesus. So you might ask, are there other salvations? And I want to just suggest, of course there's other salvations. But there's no other salvation that's ultimately great. Does that make sense? There's no other salvation that's ultimately deserving of the designation great. So... With that, what is deserving of the designation great? Or what makes something great? As I was thinking about this, trying to figure out, like, how, how would we determine the word great? Because when you think of it, great is kind of a subjective term, right? You, you might find, I don't know, tri-tip great. And if you're vegan, you don't find tri-tip great. You find it disgusting. So it's kind of subjective. So when we talk about greatness, what do we mean by that? And this is, this is, again, my definition or way I would think about something that is 
deemed worthy of being given the term great, I think it involves at least four things. Number one, accessibility. Number two, durability. Number three, longevity. Number four, satisfaction. I'll go with that real quick. Number one, accessibility. You have to be able to access it. Uh, in other words, if, if you have access to whatever that thing is that's great, but I don't, that might be great for you, but it's not great for me. Does that make sense? So it's got to be available or accessible. Number two, it's got to be durable. So what happens if you get something that's incredibly great, and it's great for two weeks, and then it breaks? Right? You, you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's great for two weeks, but then that greatness breaks with it. So it's got to be accessible. It's got to be durable. It's got to have longevity, meaning the longer it lasts, the better it is, the more greater it is. I think you'd agree with that, right? So again, you can have a marriage that's like great for three years, and then it's no longer great. It's extremely painful to hell. It moves from salvation, heaven, to a hell that's being lived out. Some of you are familiar with that narrative. So it's got to be accessible, durable. It's got to have longevity. Number four, it's got to have satisfaction. It's got to bring you some degree of like elation and joy and, and peace. I think all four of those things are kind of in, interplaying with this larger concept of greatness. So again, I want to go back to the text because Peter's going to talk about the greatness of this salvation that's linked directly to Jesus. Now, with that being said, I want to talk a little bit about different types of salvation projects. Salvation projects. What I mean by that are different ways by which we as human beings think of salvation. Now, again, what do, we, what do I mean by that? So if as a normal human being, you are not, say, a religious person, you don't believe in God, you don't believe in Jesus, you're just a normal human being, you're trying to make good on your life. Are you comfortable as a human being living in a state of chaos? And the answer is no. I'm, I'll answer that for you. No, you're not comfortable with that. Like, we, we inherently want to move from a state of chaos into peace, from a state of disintegration, where we're coming undone, into a place of integration, where we're whole. And we want to move from a place of death to a state of life. That's just part of being human. So the process that we find and give ourselves to, to move ourselves from a state of chaos to peace, from disintegration to integration, from death to life, I'm describing as a salvation project. You guys following so far? Okay, hopefully this is not too confusing. So with that being said, I want to talk a little bit about uh, secular salvation projects, salva uh, secular salvation projects. Um, number one, we'll talk a little bit about personal, personal. So individual, personal types of salvation projects. Uh, in other words, you as an individual person who feel the ache of chaos in your life, and you're like, ah, oh, I got to be made whole. So you become, you download an app called mindfulness and you're like, ah, oh, I'm going to get mindful. What are you doing? You're trying to move yourself from a state of chaos to a state of peace form of salvation. It's a form of like bringing wholeness to you. Um, again, some of the ways in which we do this on a personal level, we find deliverance from chaos to wholeness through health and wellness, through therapy, through fitness. Some would even describe like retail therapy, right? Hello, Amazon. Uh, cryogenics, ways of preserving life. You know, maybe if I die, if I can preserve my body, so 100 years from now, when they figure this whole thing out, I'll be able to be resurrected again to have, have longevity, right? I'm not sure how much satisfaction it's going to bring you 100 years from now, living in that body that's pretty messed up, even though they might have the accessibility of that. 
Um, or if you even think of this, um, investments, savings, more money you have, the more investments you're able to make, the more houses you're able to buy. These are all ways of somehow trying to bring about wholeness or life. They're forms of personal salvation projects. Some of them do. They, some of them work. Some of them are helpful. But do they have longevity? Let's say health and wellness. Let's say you're really good at health and wellness right now. Congratulations. What are you going to look like when you're 85 years old? What happens if you get in a car accident? Again, without sounding morbid. All of these things, though, as great as they may be, as much satisfaction as they provide right now, do they have longevity? Do they have durability? Let's talk a little bit about societal deliverance or societal salvation projects. Um, we live in a society, a community, and we recognize, especially 2020 has kind of brought to light all sorts of ways by which our community, our culture, uh, has a lot of deep pain. You may agree, you may disagree with those points of pain and the relevancy of those pain and to what degree the acuteness is there. You, But the, you have to step back and realize by way of assessment, our culture at large is not whole. It's not filled with shalom. It's not filled with peace. There's disintegration all around us. So there are attempts to try to discover reintegration of this community and culture. So we would call that, I would call that kind of like a, a societal salvation project. And here's some different ways by which society at large is trying to embrace various forms of salvation projects. This could be through even just welfare programs, more money into the system, more money out of the system, more money to the people will somehow bring about salvation, or at least that's the way the narrative goes, or at least the hope is affixed to that. More legislation, more laws set in place to regulate, to control hate speech, or whatever the case is, or to cancel this or cancel that, somehow will remove society of its ills or woes or bigotedness. But will it really? Do this work? Does that legislation? Does it have longevity? Is it accessible? Does it bring satisfaction? Or does it actually just limit rights and freedoms? Again, without sounding political or trying to get political, I'm just simply trying to point out these are salvation projects on a societal level trying to move society as a whole from a state of chaos to a state of wholeness, from death to life, from disintegration to integration. I think about even Karl Marx and communism and the whole idea behind that was his attempt was to analyze society and culture at large and describe that the main problem, main woe of culture at large is broken down into two main categories of individuals or people or groups from the oppressed to the oppressor. You have the oppressor who is somehow exercising power and authority and destruction over a class of group of people. So you have what's called class struggle. And if you can somehow address the class struggle, then you've got utopia. You've got a better society. But do you really? Does it really work? Has it been proven to have really worked? And the point that I would just make again, without trying to go down any rabbit trails Dissecting these things, I just want to simply point out the fact that these concepts of salvation projects, they've got limited mileage. Because it points to the fact that there's something inside of each one of us that we want to have our lives made whole. I was just reading an article this morning. I'm going to read some sections 
of it to you because I think it was so pertinent to what we're talking about here today. In fact, this article just came out two days ago from March 5th, 2021 by a gal by the name of Lace Stein. It's the name of the article. This is New York Times, the op-ed piece. It just simply says, empty religions of Instagram, empty religions of Instagram. In fact, I just posted on my Facebook page. So if you'd like to go read the entire article, go read the entire article. I'm just going to read some excerpts of it because I think it's profoundly insightful to the state of human beings right now in our culture, maybe many of us in this moment. This is what she says, the empty religions of Instagram. I'll just read a handful of segments of this. She says, on Instagram, I follow 700 people, mostly women. Many of those women follow Glennon Doyle, whose memoir has been on the Times bestseller list for 51 weeks. She goes on to say, fans of Glennon Doyle's gospel, it's interesting, I don't, this gal's not a Christian, but she uses religious language. She says, Glennon Doyle's gospel Good news, announcement, preaching. She's preaching a salvation project. That's what she's saying. This is her language. Uh, many fans of Glennon Doyle's gospel, an accessible combination of self-care, activision, uh, activism. Uh, activision is actually a video game con- complex from many, many years ago, but I digress. Um, act- activism, uh, tongue-in-cheek Christianity can worship day and night at the quote-unquote electric church of her Instagram feed. Mrs. Doyle, has become a charismatic preacher for women like me who aren't even religious. And she goes on to say, many millennials who have turned their backs on religion or religious traditions, they have found an alternative scripture online. Our new belief system is a blend of left-wing political orthodoxy, intersectional feminism, self-optimization, therapy, wellness, astrology, and Dolly Parton. And we found a different kind of clergy, personal growth influencers. It's interesting. She's look, wonder who my clergy is, wonder who my pastor is, she's saying. It's a Instagram influencer. She goes on to say, I have hardly prayed to God ever since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside of me a profound yearning for relevance, reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't shilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. She's saying the influencers that I'm hearing constantly that are really influential to me, I'm kind of tired of the shallowness of where they're headed. Though I long for some degree of moral authority, someone to guide me and direct me and not mislead me. And then she finishes with this statement, the left wing secular millennials may follow politics devoutly, but the women we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Listen to the three questions she asked. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? And she finishes with this final statement. Just listen carefully. She goes, there is a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. Listen, there's a chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. She's admitting the deepest longings in my heart are unable to be touched to the depth of the wisdom that's being offered by those who have the loudest, most influential voices. She finishes with this statement. We are looking for guidance in all of the wrong places. Instead of hoping to engage 
with our most important questions, our screens might actually be distracting us from them. We may actually need to go to something like a church. Here she's admitting, she's recognizing, there's a deep longing in my soul that scrolling through Instagram blindly, mindlessly, forever and hours and hours may provide accessibility, may have a greatness in terms of accessibility. It's there in the palm of your hands. But does it provide durability? Can it be deemed great? And this is where Peter comes back. And his whole point, again, in verse 10, is he says, concerning this salvation. This salvation that comes from Jesus. How great is this? And I want to look at a couple things and wrap it up with some final thoughts. As he begins to now talk a little bit about the hosts of witnesses. The massive multitude of people and spiritual beings, like in a grandstand, that are arising, standing to their feet, sitting on the edge of their seat, looking into this greatness of Jesus and what Jesus has been up to and what Jesus is currently up to, what Jesus will one day bring to a final climactic account when he comes again, what Peter is saying, what you have been swept up into, don't lose sight of the greatness of this salvation that stands in contrast to the alternative salvation projects of our world, both personal and societal and Instagram and all of these other forms. And his whole point as he describes, as he unpacks this, as we just read this, is why we can identify the salvation that comes through Jesus alone, the exclusivity, if you would, of Jesus is so great, he points out there's four main elements that kind of stand up and shout in vocal acclamation and greatness of who Jesus and how great he is. He's going to point out four of them. Number one, he's going to describe the prophets, the apostles, the Holy Spirit, and the angels. We'll go through each one of them. So number one, the prophets. He says in verses 10 through 12. Again, I'll just repeat it. Listen closely, carefully. He says, concerning this salvation, he says, the prophets who prophesied about the grace they that was to be yours they inquired carefully so what he's saying the prophets so he reaches back into what we would call the tanakh uh, the old testament we call it the old testament the law the writings the prophets and he's saying that throughout this entire corpus of inspired writings we'd call the scripture there are these prophets slash poets that spoke of, talked about. They might not have fully understood exactly what they're writing about, but what he's saying is that they testify to what you now have. That's what he's saying. And these people who wrote of this, they longed for this, but they never fully grasped it. They never fully had it, though they longed to understand it in its fullness. He says, they prophesied of the grace that was to be yours. They searched, inquired carefully, inquiring of the what? person of the time, Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. They were serving not themselves, but you. So number one, he points out the prophets. These writers were pointing forward. Again, they were pointing forward to Jesus. For us, obviously living in 2021, we're looking back to Jesus. But they were pointing forward. Those that were living in Peter's day that he's writing to, 
they would have not have actually seen Peter or seen Jesus. Uh, even Peter talks about that. He says, even though you have never seen Jesus, we saw this last, last week, you love him. Even though you never sat down and had a meal with him, you love, you are devoted to this Jesus. So number one, we see the prophets standing kind of in this grandstand, confessing the greatness of this salvation. Number two, we see the apostles. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, and has been announced to you through those who have preached to you the good news. So he's describing those who preach the good news to you. Probably a reference to what we would describe as the apostles. The word apostles just simply means sent ones. Those that have been sent forth, going out, the, are the ones that are proclaiming. Listen, for example, Acts chapter 14, verse 27. It says, and when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and then they declared, it's the word declares, the same word uh, preached or proclaimed, declared all that God has done. So what was the job of the pastors or the apostles? It was to declare, it was to promote uh, evangelize. We would use the modern word evangelize. Evangelize. Uh, uh, I'm not even going to try it. Um, you're supposed to just sound like uh, bold, but I, I just blew it right there. So anyways, the idea of evangelization, evangelization, that's what the word basically means, is to speak forth, to declare, to speak of. And this is exactly what the apostles did. They declared the greatness of this salvation, and they went around doing so. So number one, we see the prophets, they testified. Number two, these apostles, they declared the greatness of the salvation. Number three, we're actually told that the Holy Spirit was the one that actually was working through the prophets and the apostles doing this. Listen to how he describes this in verses 10, or verse 12. He says, by the Holy Spirit who was sent from heaven. So how did they preach? How did they declare? They did so by way of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God's presence, was empowering them to do so. Uh, listen to how Acts chapter 20, verses 18 through 21 says. It says, you yourselves know that how I live from among you, this is Paul, he says, I serve the Lord daily with all humility, with tears, with trials, but I never shrunk back from declaring to you. Then he goes on to say, ultimately, repentance through God, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point that Paul is saying is that, look, even though my time with you was tough, it was challenging. There were times I was filled with sadness and grief and tears and hardship and difficulty. I did not shrink back. By the way, this is what a pastor's job is. A job of a pastor, job of a preacher, job of an evangelist, job of a missionary is not to preach themselves or not a self-help gospel or not even to promote their greatness through their platform. It's to promote Jesus. And ultimately to bring people to an understanding of the greatness of God, inviting people to turn from their past ways, and again, alternative gospel or salvation projects, to turn to Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and faith. So repentance and faith, turning from and then turning towards Jesus, turning to Jesus, the true salvation. So number one, we see the prophets, the apostles, the Holy Spirit. Third, or fourthly, we see the angels. Verse 12, he says this, these things into which even the angels long to look. Again, there's a lot that can be elaborated on this, but Peter just simply kind of pulls back a little bit of the, the veil of heaven. He says, look, even angels, even these heavenly divine messengers from God, even they are deeply interested in this whole salvation thing that you have been given by God that you've received that you're enjoying. And he says they, they, they desire to look into these things and make sense of it and try to understand it. But the point that I think 
Peter is wanting to say is that you have been given this salvation. As Paul would later say, it's a salvation that comes by grace through faith. I would suggest to you, every salvation project at least has these things in common. Check it out. Both of them require a tremendous amount of energy in work, whether it be personal or societal. Both of them uh, require a tremendous amount of energy in work. On the one hand, if you get what you are longing for, if you get that salvation, if it provides some measure of help and assistance and pleasure for a season, there is always a temptation to become filled with arrogance and then condescension to look at others that don't have it. So let's say, for example, health and wellness. You get that fit bod that you've always wanted. What do you think about other people that don't look like you? There's a tendency to look at them with disdain. Well, they don't work out. They don't care for them themselves. They don't eat right. Why? What are you doing? You're disdaining someone because you got salvation and they didn't. Why? Because you worked hard for it. You got something they didn't get. You feel the joy of that. Now you feel you can condescend other people. Or let's say, for example, you work really hard for it and you don't get it. Where are you left? place of despair so i suggest to you all forms of salvation projects that are outside of jesus will always either leave you filled with a sense of despair or disdain despair because you didn't get it disdain towards others because you did get it and you worked hard at it and everybody else is a loser and you got it they didn't those are totally different than the gospel of salvation that Jesus gives. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't deserve it. Yet God stepped into your life in the midst of your mess, in the midst of your brokenness, and rescued you. Why? Because he is good and he loves you. You didn't deserve it, but he gave it to you nonetheless. So what shall we say about that salvation? It's great. How great? It's so great that the prophets, the apostles, the Holy Spirit, and the angels testify to its greatness. And there's one little final crew of people that testify to this. And I'm going to finish with this final thought. So I want you to turn real quick, if you'd like, to Revelation chapter 7. I'm going to just read you again another lengthy passage of Scripture. And then we'll finish. In fact, I'm going to have Zach come on up. And he's going to get ready to leave us in a song. And as we close, we will then go to communion. So how about we all stand as I read this. In fact, the way I'd like to read this. I would like for you, if you want, you can follow along if you want. Or you can just close your eyes and listen to it. Because I think it's just so important. Because the big idea that's being conveyed here. So I want you to catch in your mind the idea of the greatness. How great is salvation that comes through Jesus? In other words, does the salvation that comes through Jesus, is it worthy of that designation greatness? In other words, is it accessible? Is it durable? Does it have longevity? And does it bring deep satisfaction? Think about that. Is it worthy of the term great? And listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 17. Kind of lengthy, so just listen. John wrote... I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all languages, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. 
And they are crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels, they were standing around the throne, singing around the elders and the four living creatures. And they also then fell on their faces before the throne. And they worshiped this God, saying, Amen, all blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might, belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, saying, Who are these that are clothed in white robes from where they have come? And I said to him, I don't don't know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of great tribulation, trial, hardship. They have washed their robes, and they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will never hunger anymore, never thirst anymore. The the sun will never strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So I want to ask you as we close, why don't we close our eyes and just consider... How great is your salvation? If you know Jesus today, you know that greatness is the only word to use to describe it. If this morning you would not be able to say that Jesus is your salvation, by default you have turned to something else. It would be worthwhile for you to think about what is that something else that you have turned to are turning to, or may by default end up turning to at some point. I just ask you the question, how great is that salvation? How great is it? Is it accessible? Is it durable? Is it enjoyable? Is it everlasting? My invitation to you this morning is to turn to the one that has demonstrated his love to you and has given himself for you. To turn to him the way we describe in repentance, to turn from whatever other salvation projects you've been turning to, to turn from those, that's called repentance, and then turn to the one who loves you. We call that faith. Repentance and faith. Confess his goodness. Love him. Ask him, God, wash me, cleanse me, make me whole.